Welcome to the Food Intelligence Podcast presented by TasteWise. Um, my name is Ron and joined with me as always is Miriam. And previously on the Food Intelligence Podcast, uh, we started talking about inflation. And more um, specifically, uh, we talked about how inflation uh, behaves at different large chains. Um, and we started talking about it, how it impacts the uh, the food and beverage industry at large and uh, food service uh, more specifically. Uh, and today we want to continue that conversation and talk more specifically on how different brands are being impacted uh, by, uh, by inflation and also some comparisons uh, that are more geographic, like how are different locations behaving under uh, the, the threat of rising inflation. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. We started talking about inflation last week. Um, we mostly covered how um, how the different mega chains are reacting to inflation. We took a look at uh, McDonald's and Dunkin's. Um, now Dunkin's and not Dunkin's Donuts, I was told. Dunkin' Donuts, yeah. Now it's Dunkin'. Yeah. So today we want to talk about how specific uh, brands are behaving as um, as inflation is uh, continues to rise, uh, and also we wanted to make some comparison between different uh, geographic locations in the U.S. Um, so, where should we start? So, I think where we can start is kind of with one of the bottom line takeaways from last week, um, where we talked about how uh, big and mega chains, which we're defining, I believe, in our system um, and in our data, as having more than one hundred locations. Is that correct, Ron? Do you happen to know that number? In terms of uh, big and mega chains. Yeah, um, I believe it's yeah measured over having 100 locations. Um, so one of the biggest takeaways that we discussed on last week's pod is how um, within big and mega uh, chains, you have to understand that um, a chain is not going to have a one-size-fits-all strategy. Um, that the way that they decide their pricing changes or pricing stability very much depends on location, um, all the way down to not just you know citywide, but even like the individual locations within cities. Um, so having that data to understand exactly you know what location is changing. Um, pricing of what ingredient or what product or what brand is really, really crucial. Um, and that's kind of the number one, uh, almost like golden ticket, um, not to, you know, make light of the situation because obviously the inflation is very, very challenging, but that is kind of the, the best case scenario for, uh, for navigating these changes um, in a way that's sustainable. Um, so obviously we didn't, um, wait, <laughs> I'm laughing just because those of you who are listening to this pod won't be able to see it, but we have a current fruit fly infestation in our office and Ron and I have both just this whole episode been fanning wildly at our faces. Um, anyway, so uh, we talked last week about um, the uh, big and mega chains. Obviously, we, we didn't get into every single one of them, right? There are hundreds of chains across the US that qualify, um, or at least tens of, of chains that qualify for that designation. Um, so we talked about a few of them, right? We talked about a little bit about Subway, Pizza Hut, McDonald's, Dunkin', um, a little bit about Applebee's. Um, so today, we're going to actually do a little bit of brand analysis. So thinking about market share for some of uh, the most well-known or topical um, brands in the US market at the current moment. You could do this for any number of brands that you want. And if there's a specific category, um, or you know, brand that you're interested in exploring, definitely shoot us a note and we'd be happy to, to do that maybe on a future episode of the podcast. Um, but today we're actually going to look at Pepsi and Coke, uh, kind of the American classics um, within the beverages category. And then we'll also look at um, some stuff in alternative proteins. So um, in meat replicants, looking at Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods. 
Um, and I picked those because I think, you know, uh, a, the, just the split between food and beverage, it's always interesting to look at how those perform differently. But also um, when we're looking at food specifically, uh, alternative proteins, alternative meats um, as a really, really big moment right now and seeing how it re- reacts not only to consumer perceptions, right, of sustainability, of plant-based, of veganism, health, all that stuff. Um, the category has, you know, pricing impacts from just those trends in the market. So it's interesting also to compare that to how, you know, economic trends um, impact the pricing as well. It's always interesting to see how um, how trends almost migrate from between categories. Uh, I remember on a previous episode that, uh, that we did, we were talking about condiments and we were talking about how things... Uh, Certain trends that you're seeing uh, or certain even uh, consumer motivations that are typically associated with uh, beverages kind of make their way into condiments as well uh, to a place where they're almost competing mm. for, for certain things. Like, for example, beverages will always dominate convenience. Uh, that is not something that's going to be challenged by condiments. Um, right. but, uh, but things that have to do with flavor, then maybe you will see the, um, the difference there. Um, so it's interesting to see here... Um, what's going to be the correlation between the behavior of uh, beverages versus food um, when it comes to inflation? Like, uh, for example, do you see the uh, do you see the items that are typically paired together um, rising in similar amounts because maybe they are priced higher in like combo meals and food service, or because they are typically bought together, or is there no correlation? So, um, looking forward to, to kind of un- understanding that. Yeah, you're inspiring. I think another avenue of research that we could do in, a, in another moment as well is looking at um, combos and menu gaps also during the time during times of inflation and thinking about in what ways are restaurants um, trying to bundle different types of things together uh, in order to you know accomplish any sort of like pricing change. That's fascinating. We should think about it a bit. Um, I don't have that prepared for today. I think another complete episode that we could do, and this is less kind of driven by taste data, but just something interesting. Um, Thinking about, we actually just got a, an email back from um, someone that we were speaking to in the market who uh, works in NPD and um, was sharing with us that their inflation strategy is actually to just reduce the amount of product that they sell for the same amount, the same price. Um, so thinking of, you know, when they're packaging something up and, and distributing it to the market or distributing it to their food service partners, actually just selling you less for the same amount. So um, consumers aren't actually hit in the wallet with the pricing change because there isn't a pricing change, right? But what they're actually, the amount that they're getting, the bang for their buck is less. Um, and I just saw that Trevor Noah did a, a whole sketch on this for, I think it was Gatorade, um, for just how the, the bottle shape of Gatorade has changed um, to actually package less Gatorade within it, but selling for the same price. So we could do like a whole thing on that as well. Um, but that's for a different day. Okay. So we're going to start off by looking at Pepsi versus Coke and just have a kind of a few quick, interesting um, moments here for us to look at. So um, here's a question for you, Ron. Which do you think has the larger distribution of locations selling their product in the US? Is it Coke or is it Pepsi? Um, of all of their products or just the, the drink? Mm, beverage like or beverage products within Pepsi and Coke, yeah. Um, then I would say Pepsi because I think there are more Actually, no, Pepsi I'm going to change my question. I'm going to change my question, sorry. Um, because mm-hmm. what you're answering is is the right answer, I imagine, but I <laughs> want to be more specific. <laughs> Pepsi versus Coke, specifically like Pepsi, Pepsi Max, like Pe- Pepsi branded beverages mm-hmm. and then Coke, Coke Zero, whatever um, branded beverages. Then I would imagine it's Coke. If 
fine. Yes, you are correct. I always try to give you a humdinger, but uh, alas, that hasn't happened. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Coke has a larger distribution of locations uh, selling their branded products um, than Pepsi in the United States. Um, however, and this is a really interesting piece of information that I want us to focus on for a little bit here, three times more single location restaurants, okay, have raised their prices of Pepsi than the, than the kind of penetration of single restaurant locations serving Coke. So a different way of saying that is that more single location restaurants are changing pricing of Pepsi than they are of Coke. Um, so the way that I phrase that is to account for kind of normalizing it against just the fact that Coke has a larger distribution in the market, right? Um, so essentially more, uh, more locations are raising the pricing of Pepsi comparatively to Coke, um, which is interesting because Coke is actually more penetrated in the market, right? So um, only 1% of locations of, of uh, Coke have raised their prices compared to 3% selling Pepsi total. So we're not looking at, like we did in last week's episode, looking at kind of uh, the umbrella um, like big and mega chains, right? So like McDonald's with account is one, not the like hundreds of locations. It's just one. We're looking at all of the locations, obviously, of single location restaurants. Um, and we see that Coke is actually sold in more of them, but Pepsi is having its uh, its prices raised more, mm-hmm. which I think is, is really interesting to know and, and a little bit surprising. What do you make of that? Um, I mean, it's, it's either that... Um that uh, Pepsi is selling less than Coke at like an individual location. Um, so it makes more sense to raise the price on Pepsi to kind of get it on par in terms of earnings, how much I want to get out of it uh, with, um, with Coke. Interesting. Um, that, uh, that could be one thing. Um, and uh, the other reason could be more of kind of like your typical uh, supply chain. Um, maybe... Yep. Maybe the prices of uh, of purchasing it um, are different. It is interesting if you look at uh, both of these uh, companies, and and we're not going to get into like um, financial analysis um, here, but um, yep. Pepsi in general um, is actually one of the uh, Pepsi in general is one of the the, the strongest uh, stocks uh, currently out there. Um, so in a very much a time of economic downturn, um, Pepsi uh, is one of the only stocks that is almost like the, um, it shows the ceiling of what companies in this space uh, could hope to achieve. Um, so it's uh, one of the few few pieces of stock that still have been rising over the last month after a dip that I think pretty much everybody is, uh, is experienced, um, as opposed to, uh, to Coke. For example, um, the values of these stocks are, are wildly different. Uh, as of the time of this recording, um, Coke is at around uh, 500 a share, and uh, and Pepsi is at around uh, 168. But um, but it's interesting to see that the Pepsi stock is performing fairly well, like in in the market. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that more bottles of Pepsi are being sold, right? They have so many other products and uh, right. they have so much so many different uh, revenue streams it's such a such a big company very like extremely diversified um, but um, so it's not very easy to make like a determination of okay this is the exact reason why uh, you're seeing the the price changes so um, but th- those could be a few interesting assumptions to take a look at that's interesting and I think it's also um, 
probably an important exercise to think about. So the example of coffee that we gave last week, right? And we looked at different chain sizes and also independent locations and thought about how big and mega chains actually um, are the ones at least that are not dedicated solely to coffee or kind of predicated or premised on the idea of like coffee as part of its identity, like Starbucks and Dunkin', et cetera. Um, That big and mega chains are actually changing their coffee prices um, you know, fairly, mm-hmm. fairly regularly um, in response to inflation, but that small chains, small and medium chains, and um, single locations are not taking that risk, right? Because, and we, one of the theories that we were talking about is how coffee is kind of this staple beverage, and you don't want to mess with kind of the building blocks, uh, and that people would wouldn't mm-hmm. respond well to that. Um, so it's interesting now to reflect on that in, in the beverage space in a different area, looking at Coke and Pepsi, similarly, kind of very ubiquitous. Um, beverages across the market, right? Um, you know, name a gas station. I mean, we're not talking about gas stations right now, but like name a gas station sells Coke and Pepsi, right? Name them, name a restaurant. There's always a, I always laugh. My mom is a big, um, a big Pepsi lady. She prefers Pepsi to Coke. Um, so every time we go out to eat, my mom always, the first question she asks the the server is, do you have Pepsi or Coke, right? So it's very much part of the American um, kind of experience and consciousness. So it's interesting to see that single locations um, are actually sort of in reverse to that trend that we saw for coffee, right? Single locations are actually very much experimenting with pricing um, for these things, uh, not on the total, you know, widespread scale. Um, but that wouldn't be a normal thing to expect just because there are so many locations selling these things. Um, so Pepsi, uh, even though it's sold in fewer places than Coke in terms of a distribution level, um, that Pepsi is actually being raised in price more. You know, that's on the, <laughs> on our last episode, um, you were talking about chains, right? And you're talking about big yeah. chains and mega chains. And uh, you just said it, so it, uh, it reminded me. Uh, and you kept saying big and mega chains. Um, uh-huh. But it took me a while after you said it a few times to understand. I was like, what's oh, no. big and mega? Big and mega chains. Big and mega. Sounds like, sounds like one of those like massive yeah. retailers of like, you know, like big lots. I don't know if you would know what that is. Like just like uh, uh, completely its own chain. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. Big and mega chains. And it was, yeah, yeah. And that, like half, <laughs> halfway through halfway through the episode, I was like, oh, oh big and mega Oh, chains. halfway through. Great. <laughs> so glad you said something before. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> that's funny. I think a lesson right. that, uh, that we're learning is that I need to slow down a little. So I will. So let's do, we're going to do more analysis of Coke and Pepsi um, for like based on geography in just a moment, but I want to, I want to mention the Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods uh, example. So um, heralding back to our big and mega chain discussion. So 18% of big and mega chains have increased pricing of dishes involving Beyond Meat in the last month. So almost 20%, let's say roughly a fifth of all American big and mega chains in the past month have increased their pricing of any dish involving Beyond Meat. That is significant. That's a huge kind of, that's a huge number, right? A huge penetration within big and mega chains. Um, And we'll talk about maybe why in just a moment. Um, But only 16% of big and mega chains have increased their pricing of impossible meat dishes in the last month. Um, So there's a little bit Mm -hmm. of a change there. If you calculate it out, it's 13%. um, So 13% more big and mega chains have raised their prices of Beyond Meat than Impossible Foods. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. a really interesting statistic. So a lot of these, um, you know, 
CPGs or um, companies that are, you know, selling into retailers, any, anybody who's basically has a product associated to, you know, a brand in the, in the food and beverage industry. Um, it's very hard actually for them to track brand, um, pen- like market penetration of their brand or of their product, and even harder to track how it, it, it uh, performs against their competitor, right? So for somebody like Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods, understanding or Impossible Meat, understanding, um, like the comparison of, of what's being raised faster is actually a really valuable piece of information, right? And um, that they're able to look at, you know, we could drill down into the specific um, geographic locations if we wanted, but to understand, let's say, um, you know, a, a big fast food chain in pick a city, I don't know, Seattle, Washington um, is changing, you know, uh, its prices of Beyond Meat much more than Impossible Foods. That's a really important metric for them to know, right? In order to stay competitive and uh, to kind of navigate the the landscape. I would love to hear your thoughts and I have a, a few theories of my own, but what do you think is driving um, the kind of clear changes in plant-based meat um, across these big and mega chains? Like, why do you think I mean, that their big and mega chains are so much more comfortable changing the prices of these things versus others? I mean, I think, um, and this is just like purely a, a guess, right? But uh, I think yeah. that uh, it probably has to do a lot with the how these products are being perceived in the market. Because we talk mm-hmm. a lot about, for example, companies like Redefine Meat, for example, uh, which I mentioned mm-hmm. them a lot just because I, I connect so much with their messaging, um, where yeah. they're saying, we're not trying to be an alternative. Uh, we're creating new meat, right? This is supposed to be... Um, the this is meat, right? It's not meat alternative. This is meat. It's just yeah. new meat. That's that's our whole marketing message. Not necessarily marketing to to necessarily an, a vegan audience. Um, it is just the statement of if we don't do this now, we will simply not have enough uh, twenty years from uh, from today. Um, right. um, the, to quote their own CEO, he kept talking about like. Um, I want to make sure that I can have a delicious steak 20 years from now, right? That's why um, mm-hmm. like I'm building this company. And the reason I'm going through all of that is just because that is not the perception in the market today. Uh, these are being perceived as alternatives and that's not going to change anytime soon. Um, and yeah. I think that when something is an alternative to another product, um, there's already a perception of we're going to be willing to pay more for that because there is a price for the original product. In this case, let's say a burger, a steak. Um, And then there's going to be a different perceived price to say, okay, I want something different. I want the alternative to this. That is protein-based. That is uh, plant-based, whatever it may be. Um, Then there's almost like an implicit uh, assumption that uh, I'm going to be willing to pay more for it. Um, and there's also, I think, an assumption or a perception that uh, the type of audience that uh, that will go for that type of product um, is uh, is the type of audience that uh, will pay more uh, for like a quote unquote like high end type of uh, product, which is also like I don't know if that is actually true, but uh, but that feels to me like very much the the perception, right? Like if you think about um, the the stereotypes even that uh, mm. that certain foods are associated with. Um, yeah. So I think it might make it a little bit easier to raise prices um, on these things. Um, I think it will also probably get in the way of a lot of these products accomplishing their vision, 
right? Mm-hmm. Because um, the only way that they will be widespread enough is if they are also affordable and accessible to a wider audience, right? Like you were talking right. about convenience and we're, we're talking about these things. So I think that could be one. Um, as for, you know, specifically impossible versus beyond, beyond you said that, uh, that beyond the prices for beyond are increasing more than prices for impossible, right? You mentioned, yeah. um, and that maybe there is even, a, even like a, a difference in perception between these two brands specifically, right? Like, because impossible, it might be the more um, established company, maybe the more even like traditional company in the space. Um, uh, maybe it's perceived that way and beyond uh, is perceived as kind of like a different class of, uh, of products. Could be. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's going to be a really interesting case study to see what this period of inflation does to the alternative protein uh, market in uh, in general, but um, that's where my mind goes to uh, immediately. It was the same one we were talking a little bit about um, about coffee and why uh, the prices for coffee are rising more in uh, at, like at chains where perhaps the coffee can be already a little bit cheaper than single locations that might have more like specialty coffee places. Maybe because of the association with like gourmet or, or you know high end uh, eating and drinking. Um, that's, that's where my mind goes to. So that's a really good point. Um, I think everything that you're pulling out is, is, um, wise and interesting. And again, these are all kind of conjecture, um, but based on, you know, uh, knowledge of, of what happens in the food and beverage industry, I would say that your, your last point about gourmet or things like that, I think there's also, it's, it's an interesting, almost philosophical question. If we have an ingredient or a product or, um, you know, a dish that caters to needs that are not seen as being mainstream or mainstream, quote unquote, enough, um, that there's almost an expectation that consumers will be willing to sacrifice a little bit more money for the for the pleasure or the privilege of having those needs fulfilled, if that makes sense, right? If it's not, if it's not kind of addressing the bottom line base of like health, uh, taste, health or taste, I would say even, right? Um, that like, if it's something beyond that, like if it's sustainability or veganism, plant-based, um, even like certain forms of health, I would say, like functional health, right? Um, that those things are seen as um, almost like economic, uh, like, uh, well, one, brands rely on those things to be economic drivers, right? That they can charge more. But um, there is something there about like niche consumer need equals higher economic spending power, um, which I think yeah. is interesting. And I think there's probably going to be a revolution in that um, in the coming months and years, I hope. Um mm-hmm. And also just to draw back to what you were saying about the coffee example, yeah, for sure. I think that there's also really an interesting thing here, almost like a, a parallel between Beyond Meat and Impossible Meat um, as being sort of these these niche items, um, as well as the like seasonal drinks that we talked about at Dunkin', right? That brands or um, chains are much more willing to experiment with raising the price on things that are seen as, seen as being more like special or niche or whatever, and, and anticipating consumers will be much more comfortable with that. So the example of like cold coffee or iced coffee in the summer at Dunkin', as they will for mm-hmm. like, you know... Um, the Beyond Burger at Burger King or whatever, right? Um, okay, the next piece of, of data that I want to pull out for about that, and this is kind of the thing that throws the twist into the puzzle. Um, so 13% more big and mega chains um, actually, uh, or sorry, 
20, sorry, I'm getting my, my numbers mixed up here. So 13 more big and mega chains have raised the prices of Beyond Meat than Impossible Foods. So what we were just talking about, right? But 20% more big and mega chains actually sell Impossible Foods than Beyond Meat. So it's that same thing that we saw with Coke and Pepsi, right? That big and mega mm-hmm. chains are raising their prices of Beyond Meat more, but more restaurants um, that are in big and mega chains actually sell Impossible Foods. Do you see what I'm going, where I'm going there? So like yeah. the market penetration of Impossible Foods is actually higher within big mm-hmm. and mega chains, but big and me- mega chains are me- big and mega. <laughs> big and <laughs> mega chains are deciding to rise the, raise their prices of Beyond Meat more than Impossible Foods. So that's an interesting analysis. And, and you know we'd have to get into the nitty gritty of those brands and kind of probably have access to more behind the scenes information and behind the curtain information to understand why. But um, it's definitely interesting to know. Both behind the scenes and behind the curtain, that's a lot of access. And beyond the meat. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So just a few, uh-huh. a few more numbers for you. Um, only 5% of small and medium chains have raised their Beyond Meat prices. Um, and that's about 4.8 for Impossible Meat. So that's a huge gap, right? If we're talking about 18% and 16% respectively for big and mega chains, that number drops uh, significantly to around only 5% for both within small and, me- and uh, medium chains. Wait. So that was uh, that was a lot of numbers um, very quickly. So, <laughs> so, uh, so kind of like recapping. Um, yeah. So kind of like recap for us the the difference you're seeing between the big chains and the small and medium chains. Sure. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna say these takeaways much more clearly because mm-hmm. I realized that was a lot of just uh, number vomiting. Um, all right. More big and mega chains sell impossible food than they do Beyond Meat, okay? But a higher percentage of those restaurants are actually raising prices of Beyond Meat than impossible food. So there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Um, and 18, between 16 to 18% of big and mega chains um, have increased their pricing of these meat alternative megastars, right? Beyond Meat and Impossible Meat. But that number only drops to 5% when we look at um, small and medium chains. So big and mega chains are are by far and away changing the pricing of um, meat alternatives way, way more than small and medium chains are. So for some reason, mm-hmm. big and mega chains are taking um, that strategic decision to raise those pricing more than small and medium chains. And this, you know, you might be getting a little bit drowning in these numbers, and I understand. It's not that more big and mega chains sell beyond meat or impossible meat, and therefore that's where this pricing has come from. We've normalized these numbers. So we're talking about the shares, right? So of the, you see what I'm saying? So of the restaurants that yeah. share that sell um, impossible foods or beyond meat that are big and mega, that's where that number comes from and the same for small and medium. So essentially, bottom line takeaway here, big and mega chains are changing their pricing of meat alternatives way more than small and medium are. Based on everything we talked about so far, uh, both today and on the previous episode, um, do you feel it's safe to say that uh, big and mega chains are responding to inflation um, in a more sweeping manner than small to medium chains? Like they're making more changes, they're raising more prices. um, Because that's what it sounds like to me, right? Because that was also the case on one of the things we we talked about last week. Yeah, and I think that that has to do with just the like sheer weight of having an institution of a big and mega chain behind you, right? You can experiment with pricing at, you know, 10 locations, 20 locations, 30, 50, 100, whatever, right? And if it doesn't, if consumers don't respond and aren't purchasing, you can, um, it's not a huge 
it's not a huge punch, right? You can still uh, play with things a little bit more and recover fairly quickly. But in small and medium chains, um, they don't have the luxury of having just sheer brand or sheer like market presence to to play with. And so if they make a, a change in let's say like 10 restaurants, 20 restaurants, that could be, you know, a vast majority of the chain. So they're they're much slower, I think, to um, make these decisions on pricings, um, which is important for distributors to know, right? Who are selling into these food service uh, locations or with their food service partners and understanding the mentality or the strategy or even like the philosophy of, of reacting to these economic changes very much um, is different for big and mega chains than it is for small and medium chains or for right. that matter, single location, right? Yeah. Cool. Um, okay. Let's spend uh, the last couple of minutes here going through some geographic analyses. What do you say? Let's go for it. Um, so here's the bottom line takeaway for LA versus New York, our favorite bi-coastal um, comparison point. So um, more Los Angeles restaurants are raising their prices, but New York City mm-hmm. restaurants are becoming more expensive. So then, then, you know, percentage of LA restaurants that are raising their prices is higher, but the way in which the restaurants are raising their prices in New York City is higher. So if just to make it like actionable or uh, to make it concrete, if you were to go to LA and uh, you sat down at 10 different restaurants for lunch, you're more likely to see um, higher prices at all at those restaurants than you are in New York, right? The, the share would be different. Um, but in New York, if you were to sit down at the restaurant that is changing its price, the way the like amount that it has changed its price will have been much higher. Um, so, so you'll be spending... So it's not that the, the price will be higher at those 10 restaurants. It's out of those 10 restaurants you are more likely to see that more of them have raised prices. And out of 10 restaurants in New York, you'll see less of the restaurants that have raised prices, but the prices will be higher. Like they have raised prices exactly. by, by more uh, percent. Um, exactly. So let's so, say I'm, I'm making these numbers up, but like of the three of the 10 restaurants that have changed its prices in New York, in those three restaurants, it'll be more expensive than in LA. So is that, uh, and that accounts for... Um, just the amount of restaurants, right? It's not like there's more restaurants in one city. So obviously, no, no, the no. That's again normalized against, yeah, against number. It's it's all based on shares. Um, we do that to make yeah. sure that we're comparing apples to apples and not oranges to kumquats or yuzu or whatever. <laughs> um, all right, there. That's interesting because there, I pro- I don't have a theory on on why that is. Why uh, New York restaurants are raising their prices more aggressively, but more LA restaurants are raising their prices um, overall. I don't have a theory either, and we would need to to look into it. If any of our listeners have any ideas, um, definitely shoot us a note. We'd love to to talk about it with you. I'll give an example. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're thinking about you know bottled beverages, we just talked a lot about Pepsi versus Coke, so I'll give you an, an example that aligns there. Um, the number of restaurants that have increased the price of Pepsi in Los Angeles is three times more the number of restaurants that changed pricing in New York for the for for Pepsi in the last month, right? So a lot more restaurants in LA are changing their pricing of Pepsi than in New York. Obviously, we're talking about share again, not share numbers. Um, but mm-hmm. within those restaurants in New York City, the pricing change in dollars is actually you know 14% higher than that of LA. So if you happen to enter a restaurant that has changed its pricing of Pepsi in New York, you are likely to pay 14% higher than you would um, in LA, even though more restaurants in LA are changing their pricing of Pepsi. So that's, I think, just like a a real world example. I mean, something something we talked about a lot last week, which is probably why we're not mentioning it a whole, whole lot now, 
is uh, what do you do with this information, right? Like uh, what uh, um, what is it good for? So, I mean, if you're in the industry, this is, I'm assuming this is as fascinating for you as it is for us. But um, uh, I think that at the end of the day, a lot of the... Um, a lot of the relationships between uh, both distributors, CPG, uh, brokerage companies, uh, all of the kind of ecosystem around uh, food service, specifically in this case, because we're looking at venues, um, around restaurants, um, has to be able to track very effectively the fluctuations in price, right? Like you have to be able to know um, price changes across your, let's say, region, the region that you're selling to uh, in a certain category. And that can be like a cuisine or it can be um, a certain type of, uh, of product, depending on what it is that you sell. Um, I had no idea how any of this works before I started working for TasteWise, but I got the chance to talk to some distributors where they were really so much more than, you know, the logistics company that moves the, um, you know, the products to the restaurants, but they were also, you know, menu advisors and uh, they helped mm-hmm. out with anything that had to do with opening a business from designing the the menu itself to what dishes you put on it, to how many people you have to hire, to what uh, type of refrigeration you have in your kitchen, right? So mm-hmm. uh, they're almost like partners in the business in, in a certain way, or at least the, the best ones out of them behave that way. Um, and I think that we're seeing, I think, pretty much, pretty clearly that large places, the the, the mega chains, um, are raising prices more aggressively. Um, yeah. And it is more difficult for smaller chains, um, places who have under five locations, uh, or, or even like medium chains that are typically like regional, it is harder for them to compete, especially if it's in the, in the same category, like if it's uh, the same product. Um, if you have restaurant partners that you work with, or if you are uh, owner of one of these chains yourselves, you have to be able to track these prices to know when is it strategically um, the right time to raise your own prices in a place that you can do it with confidence, right? And not with just like, ah, this feels like, you know, everybody's raising prices, I should raise them too. And then you can overshoot it or you can um, right. end up underpricing as well. So um, that is... From what we're seeing with uh, TasteWise customers, at the very least, um, the the increased reason, incre- the reason for increased interest in uh, in pricing information. Right. Yeah, because making strategic decisions based on data is a much safer way to do decision making during a really volatile time. Right. Um, if you're doing it based on gut feeling or you know off of a few conversations that you've had with one you know distributor or restaurant partner, um, it's not not great. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something else that I wanted to add there. Uh, uh, okay, maybe if I remember, we'll come back to it. Um, all right, I want to give a few examples. Um, we're not going to go through all of the the geographic examples um, that I've pulled, but I, I want to, I think, talk about just one. So um, when we think about, we just talked about kind of the difference between small and medium chains and large and or uh, big and mega chains, right? Um, so let's think a little bit about another way to look at chains or um, restaurants generally, food service generally, is geography, right? Which we've talked about mm-hmm. a little bit, but um, with New York and LA, but let's think a little bit more broadly. So what do you think is the city with the highest rate of restaurants to increase Pepsi pricing in the U.S.? Meaning out of all of the, of the U.S.? All, mm-hmm, out of all of the U.S.? I feel like that will be, I, I will just be naming a random city. Name a city, Ron. <laughs> Name a city. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona. 
That's what you always guess. You always guess Phoenix, Arizona. You know, have you even been I to Phoenix, not, Arizona? I have. Uh, I have also been to Flagstaff, Arizona, so I can nice. change my guess to that. Um, yeah. What do you think I you know, call people yeah. who live in Phoenix? Uh, like if people from Los Angeles are Los Angelinos, people from Chicago are Chicagoans, people from Richmond fin- are Richmonders. Fin- uh, Phoenicians? I think it might be Phoenicians, like the ancient seafaring community. <laughs> this is this is now a podcast about a completely exactly. different topic. Tell me more okay, about but bringing uh, us back. Bringing us back to the topic at hand. So, no, the answer is not Phoenix, Arizona, but good guess. Um, the city with the highest rate of restaurants to increase Pepsi pricing in the U.S. is actually El Paso, Texas, which is fascinating. Um, so 10% of restaurants that sell Pepsi have ra- in that city have raised their prices of Pepsi with a whopping average 50% price increase in the last month. Um, so that means if a can of Pepsi and in, in 10% of these restaurants that sell Pepsi, if a can of Pepsi, you know, cost $2, now that same can of Pepsi costs $3. And that was just in a month. Um, and that's a pretty significant change, right? If you think about it, a, a 50% change is, is significant. Um and I, just to give context, people might be saying, okay, but like, you know, restaurants change their pricing all the time. Why does this matter? Uh, for context, in El Paso, um, usually sees only around maybe a 2% monthly increase, if that. Um, usually, you know, somewhere between zero to two. Um, so having a, a 50% monthly increase is definitely a sign of, of like a reactionary sign to inflation um, mm-hmm. and is really surprising. Um, so yeah, if you're working in El Paso and you happen to be selling Pepsi, yeah. that's good to know. But the, the bottom line takeaway here is it's much bigger, right? Yeah, I mean, I think these are, at the end of the day, um, all examples, right? Like these are, this is all uh, data that uh, we're pulling out of, um, out of TasteWise uh, to give you examples for both how our customers are using this data, um, but also because we get specific questions about uh, about these things. Um, so I always mention this at uh, at the end. I know we're close to to running out of time, but um, um, if there is a specific location that you're working on that you would like to make some uh, price comparisons at, just like we were doing right now for El Paso, sure. Texas, uh, or just like throwing it out there, Phoenix, Arizona, just like another place that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, shoot us enough. <laughs> yeah, is it though? I don't know. Um, that would be for a good Phoenicians, question. It probably is. <laughs> what, do, what, what do you call people from Denver? Um... I don't know, Denver, Denverians? Let's, let's find out. I'll find that out while Denver, you keep going. De- Denverinos. I have a friend who lives in uh, <laughs> Broomfield, Colorado. What do you call people from there? Broomfieldians, um, obviously. Uh, so my point was that uh, you can send us a note at live at tastewise.io um, with the things that you want us to cover, specifically this month and next Um around inflation and pricing information is uh, is the best time to contact us about uh, about these things because most yeah. of the th- the things that we'll be putting out will be about that. Um, I don't know if we have time for anything else, but was there anything else that you wanted to wrap up with? Yes, two things. Um, the first is that I wanted to share just a, another, just to kind of bring full circle our conversation about alternative proteins. So um, 
the cities that have the highest percentage of restaurants to raise their prices of dishes involving impossible meat um, is actually Indianapolis, Indianapolis, Indiana, and Aurora, Colorado. Um, And for both of those, a full third of restaurants uh, selling that ingredient have increased their prices. So a full 30%. Um, And the biggest takeaway there is not, as Ron was saying, that Indianapolis and Aurora are experiencing these price changes, but just that, you know, we're in a moment of, of such economic volatility that people are... Um, making strategic decisions to change even a full third, right? A full third. Think about the last time that you saw a full third of restaurants change anything kind of en masse, right? Um, So I think the urgency is there and it's really important to pay pay attention to it. Um, The second thing that I wanted to offer is that uh, Denver, people from Denver, I think are called Denverites. And apparently when you, the the, like technical term for the name of people, like the name of people from where they are from are called Mm -hmm. demonyms. And there is actually no rule about how they're formed. They're just like a colloquial decision. Like if people refer to themselves as something enough times, it just becomes what it is. You have reverted into academia, Miriam, for like a full minute there. Tell me that's not interesting. Is that interesting? That is, it's interesting. It is. It is. It's interesting. Thank it's you. fascinating. Um, if you, you so go much. back, if you go back through the Tastewise blog um, to Miriam's early days at Tastewise. <laughs> Uh, you will, these are like, it's all just these words, like the colloquial, the <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Yeah, um, exactly. So, um, Miriam, thank you for all this really fascinating research, including, um, oh, what people from, uh, from Denver and Broomfield are, uh, are called, oh, yes. um, I'd like to thank the Broomfieldians. Um, I'd like to thank the amazing team that, uh, makes this podcast possible. Obviously Miriam, uh, all the fruit flies flying around here, <laughs> um, Eyal and Daniel, um, who produce and edit the, uh, the podcast as well. Um, I do want to mention again that uh, we're spending most of August um, talking about inflation um, on um, on our social media, on our website as well. Uh, it's a really good time to reach out to us at live at tastewise.io um, to ask us about the price, uh, the trends and price changes across the U.S. or really anywhere else. And if we're able to to give you that information, we will, or we'll cover it on a podcast episode or on TasteWise Live, which is our um, weekly research session. Uh, But with that, I hope this all has been useful for you and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you.